Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, guys, let's get started. Um, my name is uh, Hannah Riley-Bowles, and so one of the things that I get to do here at WAP is host this research seminar. Here at WAP, we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Very ambitious agenda. Um, but the role of this seminar um, toward that agenda is to connect um, cutting edge, uh, people who are doing cutting edge research with other researchers, but also our students and community members to sort of keep alive um, what is the latest thinking, both related to gender and public policy, but also um, women's leadership advancement. And um, today, I am uh, very excited to be introducing Aparna Yoshi, but actually, do you know what I'm gonna do before I introduce you, because I don't wanna do business. No, no, you don't have to stand up. Before, I don't, I want, I don't wanna do business after I introduce you. I'm gonna do business before okay, I introduce okay. you. So one of the things I'm supposed to say is that when we're sitting here in this room, we feel like we're just in a seminar room, but we have to remember that these seminar conversations are downloaded, and they've been downloaded now something like over 28,000 times. Um, so while we're in this room at a small seminar, we have to take into account that there are other people who are going to be listening in. So we ask that um, as people participate, that when you participate, when you make a comment that it relates to the talkers, the, 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 the presenter's uh, substance, <laughs> and that um, we ask questions, um, genuine questions. So that's our... Um, those are the uh, those are our kind of terms of engagement. Um, so uh, and then obviously we're going to have you know asset cell phones be turned off. Now I get to move to the fun business, which is of introducing Aparna Yoshi. Aparna Yoshi is someone whose work I've admired for a very long time. She is the Arnold Family Professor of Management at Sneal College of Business at Pennsylvania State um, University, and um, her work focuses really essentially on gender equality and women's leadership advancement. She's done numerous very important studies. I'm just going to um, share one with you, which is so striking and that I think actually sets up a bit what she's going to talk about today. She did a systematic review. Is it okay if I talk about this for a minute? She did a systematic review of the literature on gender and performance, on the gender gap in performance, or looking at are there differences in how men and women uh, perform. Uh, in management leadership capacities, and then gender differences in how men and women are rewarded or promoted. And what she found was that the gaps in um, performance, excuse me, the gaps in pay and promotion were 14 times greater than the gaps in performance, which is really profound. So she is someone who's really um, been, through her research, sort of opening our eyes to uh, really serious issues of uh, gender inequality in the workplace and the challenges of women's leadership advancement. And I believe what she's gonna to present today is some research that was motivated by those findings. So please join me in uh, welcoming. Uh, well, thank you so much, Anna, for that lovely introduction. And uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm also a big fan of Anna's work, by the way. So it's great to have met you this morning and also had breakfast with some of your fellows here, we had a very exciting conversation. There seem to be a lot of areas of connection um, between what we're doing currently and some of the work that's going on here. So I feel really um, happy about that, that there are these connections. Um, but, you, know, I, uh, I, you know, I had this provocative title, let's not talk about sex. 
and I'll explain in a minute what I mean by that. I probably don't need to convince folks here. Uh, basically, sex differences do matter, of course. Uh, but we're trying to take a slightly different take in talking about gender as a social construction more broadly as well. Okay. Uh, just a quick issue is that I usually would also, you know, after a talk, really appreciate the chance to chat with you all. I come from a really small campus town, Penn State, and the State College. It's pretty, but it's really hard to get to and get out of. <laughs> so I have to kind of rush right after our talk today. So, but I'd love it if you guys could keep in touch. You know, if there's some research connections, or you feel that there's papers that you're working on that would help me, as this is really new to me in the sense that I'm actually working on some of the projects I'm going to talk about today, so I'd love to continue that dialogue. So I've got my email up there for that purpose, that do stay in touch and keep me, you know, and if I can send you some of my work as well, I'd be happy to do that, but i also love to hear from you about your work. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, as I said, I have, uh, just to give you a little bit more introduction, and I think Hannah already foreshadowed this, I have been working on sex differences. I think it's really important, primarily because it helps us understand inequality across occupations, right? Differences in pay and promotions uh, and performance as well. Uh, but more recently, I've moved to this work on uh, research on gender and leadership <coughs> effectiveness, primarily in the upper echelons of uh, of business, of, of the corporate world, but also I'll talk about a study on politicians that's also fresh uh, right off the oven, so to speak. So I'd love to get your uh, feedback on it. I'll probably go through these things pretty quickly, but again, as I said, I'm happy to share later as well. Um, so to this point, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, since you already talked about this, is great, is because, uh, you know, there are these barriers across different occupations. So in this review, this is exactly what we did, which is we looked at across the, the cumulative research that happens to have happened, uh, uh, occurred across many research settings. So it's, it allowed us to really take into account different occupations, right, in the study. And, and certainly, as Hannah mentioned, there is a, the gap in uh, rewards is 14 times larger than the gap in performance. And that to us was really intriguing, but what was also more interesting was the fact that this gap was particularly uh, large in what we would call high prestige occupations, right? So occupations that in which, in general, there are more investments in human capital and also pay more, right? So those are the occupations where we found an even more profound disconnect, if you will, between the performance gap and the rewards gap. So to me, that was really troubling, but also very intriguing from the standpoint of being a social scientist to unpack what that means, right? What can we do about that? Um, so that's what, since then, my research program has kind of evolved around focusing on specific occupations, which we would call high prestige occupations, and see what's happening there. And they've taken different uh, slants or different perspectives on that to figure out what are some context-related effects that might enhance these gaps. Uh, so for example, science and engineering was a study we did uh, some time back. And as you know, it continues to remain in the news. I think every time I talk about the study, there's something that's just happened in the tech industry that makes it <laughs> continues to make it salient. I like that. It's also troubling. But, <laughs> uh, but so for example, this is a setting where, uh, which has been, has actually, teams are really important in this setting, right? In fact, both in the corporate and in the academic world, uh, knowledge is being increasingly produced in teams, right? And we were talking about the prevalence of teams as well this morning. 
Uh, and this is also considered ostensibly a very meritocratic egalitarian. The, the notion it conveys is one of meritocracy and egalitarianism, right? But we also know these facts. Uh, certainly nobody in this room needs to be convinced about the gaps between men and women in the science and engineering world, both on the academic side, in universities, as well as uh, in the corporate world. So what we found in this study was, what is interesting is that certainly women are great for teams, right? In that uh, having more highly educated, talented women on the team improves performance, innovation, and productivity under some conditions. But guess what? On average, across teams, <coughs> highly educated women are not necessarily valued, even relative to their slightly less educated counterparts, right? So teams, uh, women are great for teams, but the question we ask here is, are teams great for women? So what's happening in this context, which on the one hand places an emphasis on teams, which are so prevalent, but unfortunately, as some of us would also know, it also reinforces perhaps some of these status differences, which then feed into these continuing, uh, the continuing inequality that we see, right? So teams are, uh, so there's not inequality uh, despite teams. I would say there's inequality because of teams and what happens in these team-related settings, right? So that's one way in which we try to unpack how occupations play a role. The other one that we did recently was on lawyers, right? A lot of commonalities between science and engineering and the profession of law in that in classrooms, women have actually hit gender parity. The classrooms are very balanced in terms of men and women. But again, it's the same continuing persistent gap at higher levels. Right? Why aren't more women equity partners? Why aren't more women uh, at the highest levels in many corporate law firms? So this has been widely recognized as a continuing barrier in this profession as well. What's interesting about this occupation, again, ostensibly meritocratic, requires a lot of human capital investments, is there's a lot of discretion around performance and reward allocation. And this is not just a phenomenon, although we use the law uh, context to understand it, it's not just in, in the law. In, in generally, many HR, across many companies, there's this tendency to give a lot of discretion to managers. Managerial discretion is on the rise. Right, the idea is to empower managers to reward employees. But again, this doesn't work very well <laughs> for uh, the gap between men and women, right? So we were interested in, in understanding. So if you're giving managers this discretion, then you're opening up the door for their own values uh, <coughs> in general to seep into their decision making. And one way we captured those values was through their political leanings. Okay, so in this study, uh, which I worked on with uh, Forrest Briscoe, my colleague, who just got out, this is from in, takes a longitudinal perspective on this. But what you see here is on the x-axis, the liberalism of the supervisor. And on the y-axis, the reward, the performance-based pay that men and women get. Okay, so this side is the most conservative boss, <laughs> and that side is the liberal boss, right? So in a, <laughs> the point being here that when you open up the door for managerial discretion, to play a role in uh, reward allocation and performance evaluation, you also open up the door for managerial values and political leanings to further uh, either reinforce or close that gap. Right? But what you do is you open up room for variability. So that's one interesting set about this legal setting that we thought was important to emphasize and understand <coughs> how it might play a role in the continued gender inequality. By the way, 
Uh, as I'm talking, <laughs> feel free to jump in, and if I'm going too fast, which I probably am, uh, stop me and you know ask a question. I'm totally open to that. Okay. Um, so now I'm going to switch gears a little. So that was by just by way of background and some of the studies we've been working on, and sort of understand moving what it means to move from understanding these sex differences, which are really important for understanding gender inequality, uh, to thinking more, thinking somewhat differently about gender as well. Uh, so why does why should we focus on gender and not just sex differences? Uh, a good example of understanding this is the context of the upper echelons of firms. Right? I use that as an example for why gender is also important to is equally important to understand. Now, there's a lot of work in this area, and if I have a number of colleagues who study this, uh, you know, in the, there's a domain called strategic management which is uh, uh, devoted to understanding the upper echelons, right? So when I talk about doing uh, diversity or sex diversity research, they, the usual response I get from my colleagues is don't bother, there's no effects, right? Because if you look at the CEO sex or the sex composition of top management teams, you're gonna find there's no effect whatsoever on firm performance, return on assets, and those kinds of firm level variables. And, and they're absolutely right. In, in general, sex effects in these domains are mixed. They're, non, they're very small, and they're usually non-significant. And now that can be used to imply that gender is not important, right? Which would be, I think, for most of us, quite clearly a very problematic conclusion to draw from just focusing on sex difference effects, right? Um, the other problematic issue with this is the, uh, the understanding that sex effects are about women, not about men, <laughs> right? So the other problem that I try to convince my, some of my colleagues is that men have gender too. So when you've been studying, <laughs> right, I'll return to this idea. <laughs> I'll return to this notion in a bit. But that's the point, that it's not that sex effects are not, sex effects may not be significant statistically, but gender is hugely important in the setting because that's what you've been studying. I would, in fact, make the case that my upper echelons colleagues have been studying gender. They've just been studying men, right? So do you have a hand? Yes. Just a clarification. Would you, could you define se uh, sex effect versus gender? Right. So sex differences, I think they're talking basically of anatomical, biological sex. But thank you for asking that clarifying question, where gender is more of a social construction. So to the extent that to which you also embody uh, socially constructed norms on what it means to be a man versus to be a woman. So what, what, how do you control that? Right, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a, in a bit. By looking at variability in different ways, right? Uh, one is, uh, in fact, Robin Ely and Irene Padovic have a great a Academy of Management review paper uh, that is very critical of most management research, which, which is gender research is really sex differences or sex difference, uh, sex uh, research basically about anatomical sex, right? Which is basically dichotomizes men versus women, pits men against women, and treats each as if they're a monolith. Right, now that's important, as I said, for understanding certain things, but in, for example, in some contexts it can be problematic, because it shouldn't be taken to mean that gender is not important. Right, so that's the only point I'm trying to make here at this point, but that's, that's a good clarifying question. <laughs> At this Can I point. follow up on this? I mean, I, I think implicitly what you're saying yeah. is that these are these are numerically male-dominated right. work environments, but they're also, as a result, fundamental, like highly masculine right. environments. Exactly. And so what you're talking about is like we shouldn't 
just because you don't see differences between the way men and women behave in this Absolutely. environment doesn't mean that there is something to learn from the fact that this is an ex sort of extreme, mas extremely masculinized context. Exactly. Which we could learn. Is that, is that, That's that. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say. So the context is so highly masculine that both men and women may adhere to that. And both men and women may vary in their adherence to that. Right? And so it's important to understand what that variability might mean for men and for women. Okay? I, I'll try to give more, uh, illustrate that a bit more. Uh, but so for example, we look at variability. Uh, uh, the other problem with, uh, with the sex differences approach, and I think uh, uh, Rob, uh, Robin's paper does a great job also of summarizing that, is that it also ignores variability among women and variability among men in outcomes for them, right? So for example, from one way of thinking about that is although there are these differences, some women are successful in highly masculine dominated settings, right? Why are they successful? If we can understand that, maybe we have room to move forward, right? It takes us, it helps us move the needle forward. And we talked about the notion of agency and how women have a certain way of being agentic uh, over break, I think that was fascinating. So, you know, understanding that variability and figuring out ways of being effective is also important to move the needle forward and overcome those barriers. Uh, as it is important to understand variability for men. Are men punished when they don't adhere to masculine norms, for example, right? So do women benefit when they are able to navigate the masculinity? Are men punished when they are not able to? Right, so I think to your point, this is where I feel it's really interesting. Uh, additional interesting questions can be asked through our research and through our theory. Okay. So the first one, I'll just, now I'll dive into this first fresh out of the oven study, which is trying to understand this notion of how women negotiate agency at a very broad level among a context which I think is about leadership. Right, they are, these are, if I might say, professional leaders. They're politicians. The job is to bring about change in uh, representing their constituents, of course. Uh, and again, it's it's great context to study gender because it's a highly masculine context, right? So to understand how uh, I focus on women politicians here, how they have, when are they successful, when are they not successful in bringing about change. The nice thing about this context is also we know we have an objective indicator of change. That is the extent to which they're able to get bills passed on the floor. So uh, there may be many ways of thinking about change, uh, but that's one. And it's from a purely measurement perspective. It's a nice way of looking at not just whether they can bring about change, but what types of change are they more or less successful in bringing across, in, in making happen. So this is one study that <coughs> I'll dive into now. And this is, uh, I mean, some of you may have also seen this statistics, right? And when I say it's a highly male-dominated setting, it is. Female dominated. If we go take a linear to hit gender parity in the setting, if we just go at the rate we are going, it's going to take a very long time. <laughs> I'm hoping that in this 2018 we'll see there'll be exponential growth <laughs> in, in, in women's participation. Uh, but even then, it's going to take a while to hit gender parity, right? So it is. It's it's a great setting, I think, from just from. Uh, and there are similar questions, you know, being asked in from the in political science about women's participation in politics as there are studies on the management side asking about women's leadership. That is, is it a supply side issue? Uh, are women just not wanting to be in politics? Is it a demand side issue? Which is, do constituents not tend to elect women? Uh, these are exactly the kind of questions we ask 
about women's leadership in the corporate world, which is, are women opting out? And that's why they, we don't see more of them in leadership roles, or when they are in leadership roles, the demand side is that do they face biases. Of course, a bit of both may be going on. So it's interesting that there are parallels when we think about leadership in the, from the domain of political science and our own uh, corporate world, if you could. Um, so this is, again, as I said, a work in progress. We're looking at uh, how women use the issues they sell as legitimacy primes. Uh, and I'll explain <coughs> what that means in a minute. And the basic question we're asking here, because women are a numerically distinct social category, right? So they are numerically a very small percentage. When are they likely to be more successful change agents? On the one hand, you might say, are they likely to be successful when they trade on that distinctiveness? When they highlight that distinctiveness and use it to bring about change? Or when they try to assimilate with the dominant group, are they more likely to bring about change? <laughs> Either might seem feasible, but actually both might be both might be possible, right? So that's the question we are asking, and that's because I think again we have this conversation over breakfast: is that being numerically distinctive as a woman and norms about leader effectiveness are directly in opposition sometimes to each other, right? So it's uh, that's also what makes it salient. So while being the being female, being a woman is chronically salient. It also is sometimes directly in opposition to what our schema are about effective leaders. So I think it's really interesting juxtaposition of these two competing dynamics, which for these women are inescapable, right? So the question we asked here is, on the one hand, you might, some of you might say, of course you assimilate, right? That, that Cantor's work on, would suggest that women do tend to assimilate and try to fit in. Uh, with, no, with masculine norms, and that should be the way to go. But some others might say, wait a second, you might also trade on being distinctive. So there is a notion of optimal distinctiveness. Brewer's work would suggest that you can use that numerical distinctiveness to actually be more visible uh, and bring about change. You had your hand. Yeah, I was just to clarify. So is this yeah. like the issues they sell? So if you're a woman choosing specifically like women's issues like to talk about that's right. versus like more masculine like military and defense. That's exactly okay. right. That's perfect. In fact, the nice thing about studying politicians is you can actually understand what the bill is about, right? So it helps us actually get but at that. It's what the bill is, not how they sell it. Because you could see how you that's could, right. you, could you, you could you could make military or like defense a more feminine issue by talking about foreign intervention to protect women oh. and like like so yeah. is it the way in which you sell the issue or the issue itself okay so we are not able to although I, I like what you're saying because we although we can't measure that through our archival data mm -hmm. we weren't able to get at that we try to supplement that with interviews with women executives and some like just archival data from women politicians on how they're selling it it's mm -hmm. like we're uh, black boxing that. We're okay. saying that maybe there's something they do in how they sell the issues. But uh, it, uh, you know, when, when you see the findings, maybe what yeah. you're saying may be even more <laughs> relevant. So I'll you know, hold, okay, hold, hold on to that thought. No, it's great. Uh, so basically, that's what we're trying to get at here. Um, and the, this is to your point. In fact, this is on my next slide. So the nice thing here is we can actually see the issue that they're selling, the content of it, you can see it on a continuum of being close, that identity congruent to being new, uh, belonging to this numerically distinctive category of women, or being away from that, right? So being totally identity incongruent or somewhere in the middle, kind of neutral, 
right? You can actually test that. Uh, so for example, exactly right, so a bill around what I call female-oriented issues, and there's some political science work on that that we drew on, uh, would be on this side. And we're exactly right on security, military, those are considered stereotypically male issues, and then there are some that don't fit either box, right? <coughs> Uh, and so we can use this idea of the content of the bill as sort of a prime, that is to the audience, you can use that to, are you signaling your legit, how, how are you getting legitimacy? Is it by being on this side of the spectrum or that side of the spectrum? That's the question. And here's the thing, um, a lot of the issue and voice, voice literature has focused on choice. Right, that is, I might choose certain issues. I might advocate for things that are close to my heart or my political values, the tempered radicals, for example. That's about my personal values and how I might bring about change on that. that but that assumes that you're making this choice to begin with. We're taking a slightly different view here and saying that over the course of your careers, you're actually likely to get both types of issues on your table. If you're a female executive, during some time point in your career, you might be faced with championing for women, rightly so, and you might feel passionately about that. At another time in your career, you might be in a position to bring about, bring about an organizational restructuring, and that's also important from the shareholder value perspective and so on, right? Both might be equally important for you. So it's not to us an either or issue, but it's when are you likely to be more successful? It's a slight different set nuance that we are introducing to the kind of research that we've seen in this area, which has been important, but we're looking at within-person effects in this. Because in the real world, that's what you're more likely to see over the course of your career. And will, what will the audience buy, right? So, uh, you know, this again, it's interesting to me when if we focus on variability among women or men, I think you can understand structure even better in some ways, because you're looking at what they're doing to navigate structure. Right? Using agency to navigate structure is what I find interesting about looking at variability among women or among men. So here we'll focus on women is what, what are you likely to buy? What kind of issue you might sell and who, when are you likely to successfully sell it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it like anti-abortion, for example? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we can actually control for that okay. because there is some. Uh, there is the bill itself has a certain score about um, how liberal <laughs> the bill is. <laughs> okay, so I, you can get at that, but you're right. That that's and we did control for that in this uh, more empirically rather than your point. Theoretically, we don't. Maybe we should talk more to that. But uh, theoretically, we're going to make that assumption that. Uh, a uh, female-oriented bill is advocating, or to the better of women, betterment of women. Um, so to understand this, as I said, we also drew on some qualitative stuff to kind of <laughs> help us. And here's, uh, I don't know if you know Constance Bora, <laughs> uh, and I, I just love this code, because there are many things about this code, right? Are you done? I, I don't know how many of you have been asked uh, this question when you say you're on the market. They're hiring women. Uh, are you being hired as a woman? Like, you know, this is actually seen, <laughs> you know, they the so-and-so school has been hiring a lot of women, and perhaps that's why they're hiring you as a woman. And I feel like saying exactly this, but what else can I be, right? And so the idea is exactly this here. It's a chronically salient aspect of who you are. You can't do anything about it. Uh, but what's also interesting about this, uh, about 
this congresswoman is that she has actually also advocated for a lot of women's issues over the course of her career, right? So it is something, as an example of the distinctiveness strategy, she has used that to, uh, as a change to be a successful change agent. But we also, you know, we, this, in this paper, we juxtapose both, uh, we've got interviews from women executives as well, just to, because we are trying to position this for a management journal, so, you know, just to bring in the workplace into it. Uh, and many women also feel this other pressure when they talk about certain issues is that I don't want to prime the, the, the category of being a woman. I just want to distinct, uh, you know, distinguish myself from it or differentiate or distance myself from it. This was also a very, very compelling theme in our interviews with women executives where they went out of their way to say, you know, I just downplay that part of me as well. So both of these things are going on, right? It's a constant struggle, yeah. I was just wondering how you defined success yeah. for these people for being a change maker. Does that mean assuming that gendered issues or that women's you know oriented bills are important, particularly important to them, that they have more success advancing uh, those bills because of their being a woman, or right. are you saying that as a politician they were more successful because by aligning themselves with women oriented, female oriented bills? So the empirically, what we are looking at is a within person, is a within person effect, right? So given me, let's say I have both these issues on the table, uh, I'm going to assume that I'm equally, uh, you know, I've, I'm going to make the assumption that both are equally important to me personally, and then which am I likely? So I'm able to take away some of the person level differences in actual motivation to sell, if that's what you're getting at. Uh, and just focus on, so holding person level stuff constant is that difference within me when I sell something is the question I'm asking. And the way I define to your point about is actually getting the bill passed. Is getting the bill passed on the floor of the house. So you're more likely to get bills passed. Yeah, so our DV is bill passed or not on the floor of the house. Thank you. Okay, that's a good Okay, so just a little bit. So we did look at uh, just uh, we looked at bills on the uh, House and the Senate between 1993 and 2008. This covered two uh, two different presidents and four presidential terms. So we we kind of set it around that time frame to avoid other noise. Two Clinton terms, two Bush terms, <laughs> and we of course control for the president uh, in office. We control for the majority in each floor, and we put in all that in there. Uh, so now, although this is a within woman variability, I guess the natural question is what, is there some difference with men <laughs> when women sell issues? I mean, that could be a point. And so we wanted to, uh, as a baseline, at least understand uh, whether men are actually more effective. And if you believe they are more effective in selling issues, you would be right. Because in general, men are more effective in getting bills passed at least. If that's your outcome of interest, they're hugely more, uh, and they're also, there were 850 male legislators, 133 female legislators across all those years, <laughs> okay? And the number of bills out of a seven, uh, close to 70,000 bills uh, that were introduced, uh, over 12,000 were introduced by women in that time frame. And so what you have on the x-axis here is also, as I mentioned, the content of the bill, right? What's most interesting to you here? <laughs> Yes, exactly. So this to the point of, you know, uh, you know, this is not the focus of this paper, but I think it's really interesting 
uh, from a standpoint of, uh, there's research which shows that men actually don't want to uh, present women's issues because they see they don't, as not having psychological standing to do that. They feel they're just not credible. And I think this is really interesting because, and this goes back to the men's advocacy and men's role stuff that I was also really interested in, is I think we need to understand this better. I think men are actually better at selling women's issues and we need to make that message clear to them. Yeah. That's right. Yes, exactly. So that's why, you know, uh, to me that's a given. And so we don't want to focus on men versus women. I think you're right, absolutely. A lot of this is just being driven by the cultural capital that men have in masculine context, right? Uh, so that's right. I just, that, so as a baseline though, and just to understand that it is a little more prop, the issue, the other purpose of this is to show that the content does matter and it matters slightly differently for men versus women uh, and this it is problematic I think for women selling it seems so that's the main takeaway from this our focus is therefore not on men versus women because men are naturally advantaged in this setting and so to understand when women are able to move forward is what we wanted to focus on but that's a great point um, now, the, uh, so we've established that there are some differences and it also looks like, so what's also interesting about this is here there's no difference. So look at the glass half full. M women are as good as men at uh, getting neutral bills passed, which are a majority of the bills on the house, by the way. Right, so I think that's the, to me, I see that as an, that they are, so to your point, that women are able to turn the tide, given that men have all this advantage, that the fact that they are equally successful is also worth noting. Right. Yeah, you had it. Uh, yeah, just to make sure I understand. So, it's is it like a within uh, congressperson variation? Because you could, I mean, uh, just to yeah. be sure, like you could think that those congresspersons who are pushing forward uh, female-oriented laws have specific characteristics that make them less efficient, or you know. That's so, true. So uh, this we are looking at within-person effects, controlling okay. for, but you know, so it is kind of a Yeah, we are removing removing away between person. Okay. Variability. Okay. But you know what you're saying also reflects in some of our findings and maybe we should think more about that. So the issue, you know, talking about whether women who sell issues, there's something going on uh, over time is also what I was interested in here, right? So uh, one issue, is, I think what you're saying, do they get better at selling issues over time or selling female-oriented issues over time or generally issues over time? Would you expect a linear trajectory there? What's your guess? As you as you get senior, right? You would expect a linear, but this is what we find, right? So there is something going on. Now this is across all bills. It doesn't account for bill content. So this was interesting to me. I also started by thinking, okay, as you get better, you're surely better at selling bills. But there's something happening in the middle here. There's a middling <coughs> effect that happens, it seems, for women. And I do want to understand this better. <laughs> as well that over what happens in that mid career if you will but so so here you have like the survivors right those yes the those exactly so, so these might are just leaving yeah, yeah. Like saying, also yeah. those who are in the middle they yeah. probably invest their time in other activities to That's survive right. than you know being exactly a lot of congress exactly congress and work like just working in the constituency and all that so that's right so we were uh, from an empirical standpoint concerned about that and th there's totally a survivor thing here, that those women who do stick around are really good. 
<laughs> basically. So when you, although it seems linear, though originally when you factor that in, now it seems that also seems very plausible. What you just said, right? Uh, now we did some survival analysis as well to see whether it is the content of the bill that's leading to these women leaving, and it didn't. So it didn't predict survival in the data. Yeah. So we did some additional supplementary analyses to make sure that it's not what they're selling that's leading to them leaving. Uh, yeah. And does this curve look any different for males? Uh, I, I, we haven't looked into that no, yet. That, yeah, that, that might, okay, so we could definitely check that out as well. Yeah, you had your hand. That was my question. Okay. Uh, it does differ interestingly. Now, maybe this partially answers your question, but not fully. Um, that this effect is really stronger for <laughs> some of the more gender, gendered bills. That effect is still pretty kind of linearish. Uh, it doesn't really matter so much, I think, over time if it's a neutral issue that you're selling. But although this figure is not that clear, the upward swooshes are more clear when it's either a male-oriented or a female-oriented. So there's something about the content of the bill that is related to this trajectory of passage of bills as well. And again, it may be worth looking at whether that's different among men, whether maybe among men is just linear. Uh, that may be something to think about. Might be yeah. interesting to do that for, I mean, I know within your gender neutral there is environmental, uh, right? But it'd yes. be interesting to see if you could distinguish this from like an issue candidate. Uh, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, so yeah, yeah. Look and see like if you chose some other topic on which politicians self-identify see if you have that, we can do that. something. Yeah, like because I think from their web pages, one can code that somehow, right? Oh I yeah, think there's it a sounds way. like a lot of work, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you already have them coded for environmental or something. Oh, we no, can control for person, person level. Person it would be level. at the person you level. You do it at the person level, right? Yeah, which is easier in some ways. Yeah. There's only 130 women, so that's. So what <laughs> makes somebody male-oriented or female-oriented in the sense that that's what they, like a predominance? terms of emphasis. How, how are you defining male? I think I misunderstood. So how are you defining male-oriented? So that's the yeah, content of the bill. So it's based on, if a male-oriented bill is something like security, military issues, uh, which are stereotypically considered male. But it, this is, this is, are these persons? These are persons, right? So, so. So this is across person over time. Okay. It's okay. the same, per, yeah, it's people over time. Okay. Right, so it's at the, exactly, so it's, it's, it's still a within-person analysis. Yeah. I'm wondering how much, you presented it beforehand a bit more like um, throughout your lifetime as a politician, you yeah. get through all of these issues, but how much choice do men and women have yeah. in which ones they choose? Because this could also be interpreted as partly I choose different um, topics. Early on I, I feel very strongly about this, maybe I yeah. resistance and later on I feel the network, I basically become very ingrained exactly. in the system and know how to push things. Right, so that's how we are theorizing, exactly how we are theorizing about it. And there is work in, uh, actually on CEOs, which shows similar things. That is, there is some premium on maybe novelty and just energy. Mm -hmm. uh, there is some middling like, you know, I just, I just want to survive or not survive or move on to, and, and then there is a real commitment. So I think we're trying to, that you're right, that is the explanation we are using to understand this. This different effect across content as well. So, so I guess my question then would be to Hannah's point. Yeah. If you were to plot this in choices, and that they, so instead of looking uh, at this over time, look at the, the choice the exactly. they introduced, yes, the bills point. introduced. 
Uh, we may have done that at some point, but we should. We, we can, I can revisit that for sure. It's good. Yeah. Something happened here. Yeah. And yeah. My other point is <coughs> legacy issues towards the end. Yeah. That's about right. How would I like to be remembered? Yeah. Mary Franks did a sorry job on banking because that was his big issue. Maybe women kind of like, my yeah, yeah. Bush, I'll, you know. And it might be interesting to think about beginning you're making a your name. And that's then you right. go through the business of whatever's happening and then towards the end, you kind of how Thinking about how you'll be remembered. <coughs> exactly. In fact, that's what we find in our interviews and in our qualitative data as well. There is the sense of by now it's like, well, I have nothing to lose now. I just want to, I've, I've been quiet about it long enough, kind of an attitude as well. Plus, because it's about selling and what people are willing to buy, so that's also our outcome, right? So unlike the choice outcome, which is about commitment and motivation to sell, the sell, because our outcome, our DV is actually selling, it's what audience is willing to buy from you. So what we're we showing here is the audience is more willing to buy issues at this point and that point. So that's the question actually. So it's a slightly different theory than what, because here I think there's a credibility issue. You know, if she's been here, she's done so well, and now she's talking about women's issues, we have to listen. And here it's like, okay, she's new, I understand she's got some new ideas, brings, wants to bring about change, let me support that, maybe. Right? So there's a novelty premium and a credibility premium towards the end, perhaps, that women are also. Yeah. yeah. So I was just going to ask you to talk a little more about how you factor tenure and seniority into this, because successful legislation is a result of tenure and seniority. Which is just even though we've got less than twenty percent of the Congress for women, yeah, it's even less than that that are in positions to be able to that to have made it this far. So this is your right. It's a very small subset of the population, yeah. and they're to I mean, Nancy and they're probably and Diane Feinstein are the rare exception. Yeah, they're not dominating. The they're not exactly. So it's it's clearly these people are outliers for many reasons. Yeah. I think as well. There's yeah. they clearly have very well honed skills as well over that time, and people are more willing to buy from them. Yeah. yeah. You might also be able to explain the dip from like a moral credentialing story. Huh. So if you look at uh, studies that look at sort of discrimination over time, there's not a lot of discrimination at the beginning because of the social desirability, but then uh, over time they're like, well, I listened to you or I gave you money, so now my actual attitude has come out. That's so thinking about women that are a little bit further in, so now they no longer, I guess, have this novelty but if I listen to them before yeah I don't really have to listen to them and if I don't there That's is no backlash of while well, you're being really sexist and so I'm curious whether or not this idea of buying matters in like this moral credentialing I think that's a great explanation probably that's exact I mean we, I was looking for some theoretical basis for this and it looks like you guys have already pointed me to a couple so this exactly would be a great way of thinking about it as well in in our explaining these findings uh, and uh, that's also there, I mean, anecdotally from some of the interviews we've been doing. Yeah, I'll also move on a little bit. Did you find any difference between bills that were introduced by women by themselves or co-sponsored by another woman? Sure, sure. by a man? So right now we just control for number of co-sponsors on a bill. Mm -hmm. uh, that we consider it's a very tedious, uh, so for, every, for over 12,000 bills, one would have to quote uh, the number of male versus female co-sponsors. Mm -hmm. So we didn't put that in, uh, that was the one in our original <coughs> thought was to do that. Yeah. 
we didn't put that in right now. Uh, we could, but certainly we could look into that at some point. <laughs> Uh, but it was a more, just from a you know pragmatic standpoint, it was a labor-intensive process. Uh, but we did we right now just control for number of co-sponsors. But the co-sponsor issue comes up a lot <laughs> when I talk about it's it's a big yeah. Now the other thing because we're sharing politicians is uh, understanding their own orientation, uh, and this is something <laughs> that was I was curious about personally. Uh, Conservative politicians are just better at getting bills passed. <laughs> in general. This is during what period though? In that period, 1993 to 2008. Um, and they're really successful in getting male-oriented bills passed. Uh, so there is something this, you know, about their agency maybe, uh, the way they are navigating the terrain that helps them in this regard. There aren't many differences on the female-oriented side. The difference on neutral bills is also small. The biggest difference is on selling male-oriented issues. Yeah? Isn't this a, don't you have three terms of the Republican Congress? Uh, we have control for the dominant majority in the House, but that's true. There are, there are probably more Republican Congresses, so that's why. Okay. You're not that surprised. You have to have that, right? Okay. <laughs> I, I was a bit surprised by the overall overwhelming effect of being conservative on getting bills passed and certain types of bills. But you're right. Maybe, uh, we have control for that, but maybe that's in something. To I think, think about. if you looked at this in the '70s and '80s, it would be the reverse when you had sure. dominated. Sure. Sure. That is true. Comments. There's something going on here in this time period for sure. That is maybe explaining this. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if if you broke this down further by gender. I know that there aren't as many conservative women, but that's are right. they more there are fewer, or, I'm this is only women. Oh, this is only women. Right. Okay. So first of all, this is only women. Okay. So th there are very fewer women conservative politicians, for sure. Uh, you know, our interview staff, yeah, that. I have a question that's right, similar to that one. Okay. Does this control for the race of the legislator? Uh, aren't that many minority, uh, we could control for that, we certainly have that data. Uh, because it's not even Yeah, it's actually very small proportion are, I think, not non-white or, I, I need to look into that. We, we do have that in the mix. Um, so, what was I gonna say? Yeah, so we did, from the anecdotal and the qualitative data rather, we do see this tendency, uh, and we are, again, using political psychology to explain it, is that conservative ideologies in general are more assimilated, uh, they are more accepting of status quo, right? So our theorizing here is, and, and do you see that in the women's, uh, you know, the interview data that we see is the tendency to uh, win over, to kind of do lower level, kind of uh, less confrontational, more accommodative moves mm -hmm. in issue selling. Uh, we're, we're thinking that's the underlying mechanism here. Um, in fact, the two, in our discussion, we actually contrast certain media portrayals and understand and sort of the social portrayal. So now this is again how people, uh, you know, the, the whole is about, since our story is about selling issues, it's all about how the audience perceives you. And what's really interesting, for example, like someone like Nancy Pelosi is a very, is viewed, the media portrayals of her are extremely negative, right? It's very, this notion of not being too confrontational. I think being too confrontational or viewed as being confrontational doesn't necessarily work to the, in terms of bill passage. What Nancy Pelosi is really good at is fundraising, actually. 
not so much on bill passing, which is interesting here. Whereas someone like this, Ileana Roth Lietin, I think she's a she's a conservative Republican Congresswoman who has been extremely successful in selling all a whole range of bills, female oriented, male oriented, all kinds of bills. So, so at the floor in on in the in you know in Capitol Hill, I think there's something about the tactics that these women use that serves served them better, at least in that period of time, is how we are. Uh, theorizing about it, we don't, we can't get at that exactly. Um, it would be interesting to know whether these bills are consensual on average or not, and whether they win by a large majority. Right. Or not, so we know? can definitely look at the percentage of support yeah. for the bill, for sure. We can try to look into that. But that was an interesting thing going on here with some of the portrayals, and we dug deeper into some of the women in these data of how they were viewed in general. Yeah. Can I just then follow up on what Kathleen said with the majority in the House? Yeah. If you, if you think it's about selling and you think it's about individual strategies, have you looked at exactly when I'm, say, a Democrat and I sell to a majority Republican House versus the other way? Sure. Because it's about selling and it's about negotiating and choosing a strategy you think for, for what Yeah. So right now we've just controlled for the majority in the House. But I think we might be able to do something more fine-grained with that and see whether it was during which party was in the majority in that for that bill, right? Because it's a lot of the variability. Yeah. Just being in majorities, and maybe it's less. That's right. I think yeah, we've looked into that, but I think you're right. We should probably have a better explanation to account for this finding for sure. Um, okay, so I'm gonna. I'm not going to go over this uh, in detail for now, but I think the, for us at least, the idea that issue content serves as a legitimacy prime is one interesting takeaway for us. And it has implications for the work that has been done in the management literature on issue selling and voice, uh, which doesn't often look at how numerically distinctive or, or leaders from a structural disadvantaged position are able to bring about change. Right. So that's the essential question here, <laughs> that if your demographics puts you in a structural disadvantage, how do you negotiate that and still bring about change, right? That's the question, that's the big theoretical question that we're trying to answer here. And I think although we focused on women leaders, it may be applicable to other kinds of numerically distinctive minority groups. For example, African-American men in leadership positions as well. I mean, if you recall from President Obama's terms that when the Black Lives Matter issue happened, it was really, uh, uh, it really brought up some of these competing uh, pushes and pulls on his role as a leader, right? So in this particular quote, for example, he is very much claiming that identity of being an African-American man. Uh, whereas uh, other people have also criticized him for not acting enough or not saying something soon enough and so on. So there has been this, so uh, my point here is that although we looked at women politicians, it has implications for other types of, and there isn't that much on the, at least in the issue selling and voice perspective that helps us understand when can you be an effective change agent when you're starting from a point of disadvantage, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the way that you've like, framed this is from the point of view of the woman, but there's also work that I think matters here from the point of view of other people looking at them. So yeah. people assume that if you're a minority, you are an expert on those issues. So that's one aspect. But as well as there's some work showing that if you take a stance against your own point of view, that also means that you are taken more seriously. Yeah. People sort of use that as a way to justify exactly. their own biases. So thinking about, again, this like 
selling things, there's like really two parts to this story. That's and right. A lot of, I think, what might be driving this might actually be less of what these women are able to bring. That's to right. What people want to buy. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's my exactly my point here. When we talk of optimal distinctiveness and issue selling and voice, we give too much. Uh, we give a lot of emphasis, let's say, to your the choices or am I this person or that person? Who do I want to be? It's really at the end an audience-driven phenomenon. So optimal distinctiveness, which has been viewed as a something within person, uh, motivational theory, right? I think optimal distinctiveness for structurally advantaged, disadvantaged people is really an audience-driven. What they consider optimal, what is what the audience considers distinctive, is what is optimally distinctive, right? And that's exactly the point we try to make. And so it's an it was an empirical question: Will you be more successful when you you could be taken more seriously when you espouse your own identity group for some people because it's been driven by stereotypes, or you could be considered more successful when you move away from it. Right? So that was exactly our opening empirical question. And I think what this is telling us is that it seems that women are, for women at least, it works better when they are distance themselves from the identity group. And it's a question whether it applies to other types of demographic minorities or something else might be in play for other demographic groups. Uh, the issue about tenure, I think, is also was interesting to us in that why what's happening in this middle stage from a practical standpoint, right? not so much from a theoretical standpoint, but understanding uh, the issue selling challenges that women might face in the middle of their careers. And how can we, what can we do at that stage? Because once they survive and they get at the top, they're clearly very successful at getting, being change agents. But what happens in the middle is I think from a policy standpoint, particularly important to understand, okay? Well, I'm gonna move I, I, to another study, by the way. <laughs> so I'll, I'll move on, which is, the context of upper echelons, uh, where I'm going to talk about variability among men. So we looked at variability among women. The flip side of the coin is what about men, right? So here we talk about the upper echelons. And this is where I said gender really matters, more so than sex differences, because this is the general visual we get. We think about the upper echelons of firms, and it's warranted by all the statistics we've seen as well. Uh, but the, this is my point here, that men also have gender, and although these samples are overwhelmingly male. Uh, they're actually mostly 96% male. Uh, any conclusion that you derive from this research so to date is really conclusions about men, right? And so what does that mean? And I think problematizing men in those roles and variability among men is, I think, a pretty important <laughs> area for upper echelons research more broadly and leadership research in these higher levels to also take. So are men all the same? So one might say, yeah. For the most part, if you look at these two guys, you might say, is there really variability among them? They might actually all be equally the same, especially when they're CEOs, right? If you look at this picture, you might think a little differently about, are they really all the same, right? There are differences when you look more deeper among men as well in how they adopt masculinity to varying levels. Um, so certainly have people looked at, there are some dispositional differences among men that upper echelons research have looked at, such as narcissism and the big five variables. But we want to focus on masculinity as a source of variability among men, because there is a lot of theory, from more from a, that management researchers have typically ignored, which suggests that there are many reasons to expect, in fact, that there should be variability among men. The precarious manner theory, for example, tells us that, in fact, it's such a contested status for men 
that the extent to which you win that status is very variable. And it has to be constantly proven because it's a valued status, right? So whereas womanhood is not valued, if you want to be a woman, go for it, <laughs> right? But if you want to be a man, you have to prove it. That's the difference between manhood and womanhood, right? So there are many reasons, in fact, uh, theoretically, to expect variability among men in masculinity. Okay, so that's the question uh, that we are asking in this. And we are applying it to something that's been used very widely in the leadership and effective research, which is the think manager, think male paradigm, right? How, who has not heard here of the think manager, think male paradigm? Most of our research on gender and leadership effectiveness begins almost with sites uh, and references that get at this paradigm. And the question we are trying to do is we're applying it to men and seeing problematizing masculinity, uh, uh, problematizing think manager, think male from the perspective of men. Uh, and so, well, this is the study motivation, which is that Although this, theory, this has been a core paradigm in leadership effectiveness research, uh, and it has informed the right in sociology and psychology, it has informed the, a number of research domains, uh, it has basically been very helpful for us to understand differences in men versus women's success. There is no doubt. This theory has helped us understand barriers women face in leadership roles, for sure. But the underlying focus has been on male versus female differences. And so the, a tacit assumption, and maybe it's not a wrong assumption, perhaps, is that these barriers apply similarly to all women, and that all men are free from these barriers, right? So if, if, we, if we follow the next step in that logic is that men are equally advantaged, women are equally disadvantaged by the think manager, think male paradigm. Um, and so our aim is to understand, does it apply to men? Uh, do men benefit for being male? Are they penalized for not being male? Uh, and what we're defining maleness is here in the study, and it may not be perfect, is by looking at masculinity, which is defined here uh, and is actually been broadly defined as being active, decisive, persistent, etc. Whereas being feminine is usually stereotypically uh, ideal femininity is described as warm, aware, caring. Uh, others over self understanding. Those are the usual ways in which masculinity and femininity have been broadly defined. So just some operational definition. And so we are problematizing this from a three-step logic, right? First we're saying uh, if maleness is masculinity and it holds for men, then there should definitely, it should predict performance and pay for men. In, and we're looking at CEOs here. And so there should be a linear, is there a linear effect of masculinity on pay and performance? Or are there some boundary conditions? That is, over time, uh, over <laughs> some level, are there diminishing returns to masculinity? This one step of problematizing this logic. Um, a second step, if maleness is not femininity, and femininity is seen as orthogonal to masculinity, then does femininity predict pay and performance so that there is lower pay and performance associated with being feminine? And if these two are orthogonal, then they together, do they also predict pay and performance? So is there a combined effect of masculinity and femininity? Uh, do they cancel each other out or do they reinforce <coughs> each other, right? Those are the questions that we are trying to get at through this three-step process. Um, and this is how we measure, yeah. <laughs> so do you empirically test whether they're actually worthwhile? Yes. And they are. They are correlated, uh, but not too much. 
they are they are correlated obviously but not uh, they they're not overlapping constructs it's a good point and this is how we measure masculinity in case you're wondering now the problem with studying ceos is that you can't directly hand them a survey <laughs> they don't fill out surveys. <laughs> so we use this thin slicing approach of giving, of having videos of uh, of uh, 270 CEOs of Fortune 500 firms, and we coded those videos. Uh, we also did some validity pilot testing of this to make sure that we're okay, and so we trained under undergrads to uh, basically do some rating for this. Um, yeah. Question: How did you find um, the videos that would be comparable? Right. So we found videos in roughly the same time, you know, time frame. We also removed. Uh, we were actually that was a conscious effort at making. They're mostly just interviews. They weren't like huge oh, mass okay. auditorium, like Steve Jobs kind of presentations. They were mostly conversations with in, with one person, and uh, we removed information about the name of the CEO and the. Uh, the company information. So we tried to make it just like two people talking and mostly the CEO talking. So it's only two and a half minutes mm. of the CEO talking. Thank you. Yeah. That's cool. Are you were able to cut for the masculinity of where the CEO industry was? That's a fantastic point. We can only, we are, go we are definitely going to, con we, we are still getting that data. But it's clearly uh, an aspect of it, which is controlling. F and there are data, there are archival data we are going to use to control for that, uh, which is looking at industry level percentage of men in executive roles is how we would control for that. That's a great point. Um, we look, uh, looked at a number of outcomes. We had several controls uh, in here. Uh, the main outcome we're interested in is the, basically we're interested in the, the way finally we measured pay was in the first year of being a CEO, the total compensation. Uh, in, in the first year, so as soon as they come in. So these are also around succession events. So we gather data around succession events, the first three years, and we control for the firm's performance in the prior three years as well. So we were, uh, the idea was that if you're masculine or not, it's going to be most likely matter in that point when you enter a role. Um, so, this was the original picture of the upper echelons, a bunch of monolithic men, is how we have looked at the upper echelons so far. Let's see if that's true. <laughs> okay, so this is from a video on masculinity. There is a range. Okay, there is variance in masculinity. Even in this highly select sample of male CEOs, there is a range. There's also a range on femininity among CEOs, even in this highly select sample. Let's put the two together. And uh, to your point earlier, it is negatively but 0.26 correlated. You would expect that. But there's a good distribution across these two dimensions of masculinity and femininity, which we were, I mean, to me, this was the most exciting finding. <laughs> that all men are not the same, right? <laughs> In fact, here's the distribution. This is what they look like uh, from our sample. This is apparently a highly masculine fellow. Um, this is a, a more feminine fellow. <laughs> Guys, androgynous, and this is uh, what Bam has titled "undifferentiated." <laughs> that is low on both. Okay, so Bam, in Bam's original work, she has this classification, as you know. So we just stuck with that, and you know, we had to figure out what that means. There isn't a whole lot of work, first of all, on variability among men. So we're still kind of in the process of unpacking our findings. So that would be helpful to get your reactions on that. So let's look at the findings. So first, let's look at the pay findings. 
that, that the, the red, what's in the red are the significant findings, but I'll show that to you more figuratively. Uh, okay, so there is a curvilinear effect. Highly masculine, this is the first year of pay as well. So this is when you're likely to be most enthralled by the masculine leader. Uh, it seems that beyond a point, not so much. Okay, but there is, it is also moving in this direction. So it's an inverted U shape. Uh, we didn't find any effects on ROA uh, right now. I mean, we still have to introduce more controls and they're still looking for missing data, but so far, nothing on ROA. Uh, nothing on femininity, it had no effects on pay or performance, but now putting them together, when you put these two things together, there are some interesting findings. For example, here's one. And this is with pay as a finding. Uh, it seems that, and this is controlling for prior performance, right? So CEOs who are either androgynous or undifferentiated are the most high-performing CEOs in our sample. You can help me out. Wait, give, give us the, the axes again. Yeah, right, so this is uh, feminine. Um, okay, so this is uh, the, on the x-axis is masculinity. The red line is high femininity. The blue line is low femininity. And the y-axis is? Is, is uh, return on uh, assets. Line, high feminine. Yeah. Low feminine. Oh, okay. Yeah, here. There's a, I don't know if you know some of this work on androgynous leaders. Yeah. Specifically, but they were looking at race. So they were saying I that see. Uh, black women and Asian men are some of the best leaders because they combine the right. masculinity of either their race combined with okay. like their actual gender. That could be so helpful. the fact that you're finding yeah. this like within men that androgynous leaders are actually really great or seem like yeah. they're getting okay. the best return on investment, I actually think matches yeah. that. And I feel like this is one of the first examples just like within a person rather than like crossing different social identities. Yeah, really cool. yeah, so I think, th right, so I, I'll check in with you to get those sites yeah. if that's possible. I think that would be really helpful because theoretically we're still trying to unpack this, so I'd love any you know inputs there. Uh, with pay though, it's slightly different, <laughs> right? Masculinity does pay a premium in general to the extent that it's also balanced a little bit with androgyny. So in a very, compared to undifferentiated and feminine CEOs, that is. Masculine and androgynous CEOs do get paid significantly more. So although, the interesting thing here is, although masculinity doesn't necessarily mean higher performance, in the first year, to the extent that there's some amount of femininity thrown in, not, you know, it does lead to, uh, the other way of thinking about femininity in and of itself doesn't give you any premium, is another way of looking at it. Yeah. But this going back to your earlier paper is where you see the gap, right? Yes. So it's the, the only real performance pay gap looks like it's with... Exactly. Practice. To me, that's the similar... And there are two mechanisms at play here. That's exactly that. And I want to theorize about that. There's an allocative mechanism about giving pay, which is different from an evaluative mechanism, which is about evaluating performance. So where with the evaluative, you're less likely to see differences. For allocative, when it comes time to giving something, then people are a little more, hey, wait a minute, maybe we do need a you know, some masculinity in the mix, right? That's what it seems to show. Uh, and then we added insiderness, and so what's, this is interesting to me as well, right? So that performance disadvantage that masculine CEOs have, uh, they seem to overcome when they're outsiders. So we, you know, so there's something about the context of the succession itself that we need to unpack more. Uh, that outsider CEOs coming in do seem to be able to 
perform better. And so we have to figure out why, why that is the case as well. This is for outsiders only, and that's for insider CEOs. That is, CEOs who've been in the firm versus coming in from the outside. And this may be something more to do with the context of the succession event itself. But your y-axis totally changed, so basically outsiders, there's nothing. Like, it's only insiders that have actual high. Yeah, it's for, uh, mostly for insiders, you see that androgyny pre, you know, perform performance. And that may be, uh, there is some perceptual mechanism at play there as well, because I think there's, a, there's an information effect here. Uh, insiders who are androgynous, people know them better. So maybe they are, are more accepting of their androgyny because they've been in the firm for long enough. But, yeah. But if I, if I look at this simultaneously, is it right to say that essentially all the outsiders are sort of like worse than all of the insiders? That could be. That's true. If, that's so right. All at zero, essentially. Yes, you're right. So here, uh, this is standardized, yeah. So this is at the mean, and this is above industry average, this is below industry average. Yeah, you're right. It does seem, in general, insiders perform better. Outsiders, in general, you're right, don't seem to be performing better than insiders. Yeah, we have to understand this a bit more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the stuff going on. There. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, exactly. Uh, but what, anyway, the takeaways are, to me at least here, is that I think it's cool to see variability among men, even among this very select sample of Fortune 500 CEOs in the US, right? Uh, and that has consequences for firms. I mean, we're still in the process of making sure our findings, you know, including more controls and so on, is a preliminary. Uh, but that it seems to clearly have different implications, first of all, for pay and performance, which is my other point here, that clearly, even if you're looking at think manager, think male, there are different implicit perceptions that you apply uh, depending on whether it's a reward outcome or a performance outcome that you're evaluating. And uh, it seems that not necessarily masculine CEOs don't necessarily perform better, but they do have a pay premium, right? That is also interesting. Uh, and femininity helps, but as long as it's combined with masculinity, right? That's the other takeaway for me. So this is the more, so clearly it does, I think, to our original question which was about applying think manager, think male. Uh, I think there's clearly two men. Uh, it certainly sh points out uh, that there are some costs to men who are not masculine as well. So to me that's an interesting agenda to push forward as well. Uh, to problematize the think manager, think male concept, I think it's important to point out it doesn't really work for men as well, nor does it necessarily help actual performance. So that's one way of breaking out of that frame, perhaps, is more awareness around this. Yeah. So the, the is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The videos precede performance. So yes. Okay, by five years or by two years or by how much? Uh, it varies, I think, for the videos. Okay. I feel like okay. there might be some temporal distance issue or. I was just wondering if, you know, confidence or something like that, whether you might be picking up. Yeah. Feeling powerful or yeah, anything yeah, yeah. like that. Um, we should we should look into that. How far away is it from the succession event, right? And yeah, control yeah, in some way. Or the performance indicator, or the, yeah. or the performance outcome that we're looking at. Yeah, that's a great point. That should definitely be a control, even if we don't have we right. already have the videos, but we could certainly control for the timing of the videos relative to that. That's a great point. Uh, I'm going to wrap up here. Actually, we're also out of time. So two takeaways theoretically. Um, 
I think variability among men and among women is important for really emphasizing how the gender system operates in specific occupations for both men and for women. I think theoretically that's an important agenda uh, and it operates to the detriment not just for women but perhaps also of men and even that initial understanding may be a way to move the needle forward and I think that relatedly you know it's that is what I my sense is, is likely to drive future change. I think there's also the sense in the women's movement that we've gotten this far and we kind of plateaued beyond a point. We are not making it to the next level of breaking barriers. So I think the way to do that might be to show the limits of the gender system for men, even in these very select occupations that, for all intents and purposes, are designed to advantage men. Right. So anyway, I'll stop there and I thank you for your patience and attention. Uh -huh. So uh, I hope you all will um, join us next week. Heather Sarsons, who's a PhD candidate here in the economics department, is going to talk about effects of gender and um, doctor referrals. Uh, presentation called Interpreting Signals. So I hope you can join us for that next week. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs>